please open God's word with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, beginning in verse 50 down to verse 57. And I want you to listen carefully to the words that are revealed here to us from God. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable or decaying body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But it's a great but statement here. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my question. Do you believe this revelation? Here's my second question. Is it evident in your life? I want you to see why this revelation is so important today in light of another passage. In light of the passage we find in Colossians Chapter 3. Go there with me. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Listen as I read. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's an astounding verse in light of 1 Corinthians 15. In this passage here, we we learn that Christ's resurrection for the Apostle Paul, Christ's his resurrection is the very hope of our salvation and our sanctification as believers in the resurrected Lord. We're commanded in this passage to do something. We're commanded to set our minds on something, set our minds upon one thing in particular, the hope of the resurrection that saves us and will sanctify us. That hope of Christ's resurrection should transform every Christian practically, daily, as we ponder it. Paul indicates here in this passage, these first four verses, that basically this truth of the resurrection should secure your hearts and it should transform your daily lives. And that's my question for me this morning. Is that happening? I believe in the orthodox teaching of the resurrection. But am I walking in light of it practically? That's all of our question, I think, to ask ourselves this morning. So I think it's important this morning that we go to some scriptures to help us 
think through the, the big picture of the resurrection. I think we should do that because I think it would be beneficial for us to set our minds on things above and study what God says about Christ's resurrection. So I'm going to give you an outline right now for that. And God's word is the authority here. There is no higher authority, so I'm going to solely appeal to God's word to teach us about the resurrection this morning. God's word teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus was historically promised, supernaturally announced, physically revealed, and powerfully evidenced in all those who believe. So the resurrection was historically promised, was supernaturally announced, was physically revealed, and is powerfully evidenced. That's my outline. That's what I hope will lead us to rejoice in our salvation and grow in our sanctification this morning. So let's begin looking at the first point. Here we learn in the passage I'm going to take you to in a moment that we just heard read. Uh, we learned that God's word teaches us that, number one, the resurrection of Jesus was historically promised. It was promised historically in scriptural prophecies. The entire plan of redemption was foretold in an amazing prophecy that I'm going to read again. And in that prophecy, we see the, the prophet Isaiah actually summarize the beautiful picture of God's eternal plan of redemption through the resurrection of Christ. Look with me back there in Isaiah 53. Isaiah writes, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. The Hebrew word is vile and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried away our calamity, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. He deserved it, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, our rebellion against God's law. He was crushed, daka, trampled for our iniquity, our iniquities. Under the feet of the iniquitous, he was trampled. Because of our iniquities, he was trampled to death. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, or shalom, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is imputation. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was cut off, taken away, killed. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave 
with the wicked, with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, he was pure, he was righteous, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, to crush him. God has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. This is talking about propitiation, appeasement offering. And he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, speaking of Christ, make many be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He'll be their substitute. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because... He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He had victory at the end of this battle. He overcame it for those he was trampled for. He did that for us. God the Son, he tells us here, in prophecy, was historically told to be the one who would take on flesh to take our place as God's divine substitute. In this passage, in this whole passage here, his Jesus's amazing incarnation, his humiliating sacrifice in our place as our substitute and his glorious bodily resurrection are all spoken of. They're all promised in this revelation. This Historic prophecy was given to do something in the people who read it originally as well as it is today to us as we hear it. It was given to them to give them the hope of salvation and the one that God would provide to be their sacrifice for their sins. But it also was intended to transform them, make them sanctified people that would follow him. It was given to cultivate faith and repentance in the people of God in Isaiah's day. All you have to do is go into the next chapter to see that. Isaiah 54, verse 4. Look what it says. It says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. You in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. First, he shows them what he would do because of their iniquity in Isaiah 53. Then he tells them, and here's the good news. I'm going to bring you back. 
And he's trying to help them to see this salvation is meant to actually cultivate something in them that would bring God praise for the great sacrifice he would provide. And that change would be sanctification. And if we set our minds this morning simply on this first point, on the historic, historic promise of the resurrection, it'll cultivate the same things in us because our Redeemer The Lord, he lives and he is actively showing us compassion. And church, that is at the very heart of what cultivates sanctification. You don't try to be good, attempt to be holy, to gain God's favor. You do it because you've been granted God's favor out of the joy in your heart. You pursue his will for what he has done to save you. He has revealed to you how compassionate he is and how he had provided a way to atone for your sins. How could we not want to set our minds on that and not be changed practically? Secondly, let's go further. God's word also teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus was supernaturally announced. Sometimes we overlook this one. We take it for granted that this is a divine miracle, we, we sort of skim over as if, oh yeah, they did that. Listen, the resurrection was first announced by angelic beings. You guys ever bumped into an angel? I haven't. The first ones to announce what happened on this day were angels. Now, I think that that was meant to even, obviously, in those they announced it to, to cultivate some form of praise in the hearts of those who heard their announcement. And I think that that should be the case with us today. When we heard the men reading Scripture this morning, talking about the resurrected Savior, God speaking to us through those words, it should cultivate praise in our hearts. It is a supernatural announcement. Those who are not born again cannot hear it. If you hear it, it's because the Spirit of God dwells in you. But it's always been a supernatural message. But on the first resurrection day, it was announced by angelic beings, which is what they were created to do. Look with me at Luke 24. Luke 24. Luke 24. The function of the angels, they are the messengers of God. But the function, ultimately, in giving the messages of God, declaring the message of God, is to bring God praise. They were created to glorify God forever. And they do so here when they announce to those ladies who came to the grave that Christ has risen, and he has risen indeed. Look what it says in 24.1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices They had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, angelic beings, stood by them in dazzling apparel And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Church, that's a supernatural announcement. That should not be taken lightly by any of us. I have known no one who can make that claim and come through on the other side as risen except Jesus. Many people want to be raised from the grave, but they cannot do it. They have no power in themselves to accomplish it. Yet Jesus declared it. The angels announced it here, and the people were filled with praise. You go on to read what happens. These ladies run back, announcing to the disciples. And ladies, by the way, they were the first to announce the good news of the resurrection to the disciples. It was women. God has a special role for you. It was a supernatural announcement that they carried as well. It was an announcement that came from God through his angels. And I believe that these angels spent the entirety of Christ's incarnate life on earth longing for this day. I really believe that. I believe they longed to proclaim that statement that we just read. Because I know this. In that statement, they understood that the resurrection of Christ vindicated his holiness, right, as their creator, and it revealed that he was our incarnate Savior. And the angels are amazed by that, that God would take on human flesh to redeem sinners by taking their place. And he came up from the grave to declare, it is finished, it is done. He accomplished it. That message should cultivate praise in all of our hearts. That's a part of sanctification. Sanctification is evidenced in what comes out of your mouth. Are you speaking the praises of God? Are you announcing this message with boldness, with eagerness? Understand this. Go with me to Revelation 5. The message that the angels announced is the message that brings God the most glory. Christ completed his work. And the angels and all the redeemed in heaven will spend eternity singing about this. So it should do something to us practically, I think, here in our sanctification. Look what it says in Revelation 5.11. And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. They don't have a word in in Greek for millions. He's trying to compile this to give you an idea of this multitude beyond number we can comprehend. And what are they doing? They're saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down 
and worshipped. For worshipping Jesus, our risen Savior. That's what they're singing about in heaven. The host of heaven cannot help but declare Jesus' resurrected praise. How about us? Consider that this morning. If your mind is fixed on this reality, it should be what you want to declare boldly and joyfully as Christians. Unashamedly. We serve a living Savior. A living Redeemer. A living and all-powerful, sovereign God and creator of all things. (laughs) We should be like the angels, if our minds are fixed on that, ready to joyfully declare that message to whoever asks us about the hope that lies within us. That's why I think we have these revelations. I think that's why God gave us his word. Again, I need no other source to comprehend what God wants me to know about the resurrection and his declaration of its reality. The word is sufficient. Because it reveals to us a supernatural announcement. Now look with me further at my third point. As I said, God and his word teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus was historically promised, supernaturally announced, and thirdly, it was physically revealed. According to 1 Corinthians 15. Go back there again. 1 Corinthians 15, again back to verse 1. The resurrection, according to God's word, the resurrection of Jesus was physically revealed and witnessed to by many. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is after the ascension that Paul's talking about. The living one appeared to Paul. He appeared, and we know in these witnesses that he appeared in the flesh. It was a physical resurrection. The prophecies that were given, the historic prophecies that were given, are verified in this physical revelation. The announcement, the supernatural announcement of the angels was confirmed in the the physical revelation of Christ incarnate, rising from the grave. Bodily. His resurrection revealed more than that even. It testified that he was truly human and truly divine. 
It testified that his human life and his death on the cross was a perfect offering to God on behalf of all who believe. And it also proved that he was not merely human, but divine. Because he was able to do what no human could ever do on that cross and up from that grave. He was able to absorb the eternal wrath of God against all the sins of all his people by dying in their place as their substitute and then rising to declare that his death, his real human death, truly and completely satisfied God's divine justice that we deserve to receive He received it for us in the flesh, but he absorbed it to the point of saying, there is nothing more to pour out on my people. I have taken it all in, and no mere man could do that. And the fact that he is raised from the grave bodily testifies that he was an acceptable sacrifice to God in our place. That should amaze us. How long will it take to atone for our sins in hell if we do not believe? Eternity. Jesus on the cross atoned for all the sins that it would take hell and eternity to ever, ever consume. He consumed them for those who believe upon that cross in a matter of hours because he was truly divine. And truly standing in our place as truly human. Church, I want us to be freshly amazed by what happened here. Think about this. On the cross, Jesus, the spotless, pure Lamb of God. He was treated as if he was the filthiest sinner that ever lived. And only the spotless Lamb of God in human flesh could have satisfied God's demands because we know this, man has offended a holy and righteous God. Man has offended and broken God's laws. And therefore man must die to uphold God's justice. So what happened? God took on flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son became a man to uphold God's justice and show us God's love and grace and mercy in the flesh, personally. God the Son, Jesus, in complete obedience to God's law for us, lived a righteous life because we can't. And then, Jesus, God the Son, on the cross, receives God the Father's full wrath that we have earned for our sins, though he had done nothing wrong. And understand this about the cross. On the cross, God the Father, because it was God the Son upon the cross, God the Father didn't say, I'm going to be a little bit easier on you. No, the only way to atone, completely eradicate our sin guilt was to pour all of his holy, divine, eternal wrath out on his own Son. And God the Father did that. He did not spare one ounce of his full fury on his son. He poured out the whole vial of wrath that we deserved upon the lamb that was slain in our place. 
That's why we can say with Paul in Romans 8, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he was our sinless substitute who took our condemnation for us and rose, I'll get to this again, but rose to declare that we are acceptable to God. We are justified in God's sight by his sacrifice. It was the Lamb of God, Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we could never live. Understand that. Think about the picture there. This perfect lamb, this beautiful spotless lamb with no imperfections. Well, all of us have imperfections. We can't live the kind of life that we're commanded to live by God. We're commanded to be holy as he is holy. None of us are holy in and of ourselves. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. We need a foreign righteousness that comes from outside of us. So God brings it to us in the flesh as the Holy One lives in complete compliance and desire of the heart to God's law for us who do not and cannot on our own. He is the Lamb. And that Lamb was intended to be given up as an offering in our place. His positive righteousness was credited to our account on that cross. And our sinfulness was credited to his. That's a great exchange. He was the perfect lamb. But understand this. He was also the perfect scapegoat. He is the one who bore our sins and took away our eternal guilt. He forever released us from the fear of God's wrath because he was not only our substitute in his perfection. He was our substitute in his sin bearing. He bore our sins and satisfied God completely. And therefore we're released from the fear that we had before we were converted. I fear no condemnation because I'm in Christ. His life is in me. Jesus willingly did this. He willingly carried our sin guilt to the cross as our substitute. He appeased God's wrath as our sacrifice. He died a real human death and was buried as our representative. But that's not all. Amazingly, amazingly, three days Later, up from the grave, he arose, victoriously arose. He arose victoriously for our justification so that God could count us righteous in him and declare that his sacrifice was fully and completely accepted by God the Father on our behalf. Church, understand this. Only one who was fully human and fully divine could do this. Only Jesus could receive the eternal wrath of God the Father in our place and then declare upon the cross, it is finished. And then, three days later, rise from the dead and say, oh yeah, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Only one who is fully human and fully divine could say that. Saints, our Savior is alive. Consider that this morning. 
Listen, he's a living and active Savior. And he has promised to be with us forever because he has defeated our greatest enemies. He has defeated sin. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated death for us. And he's now with us spiritually, but that's not all. His resurrection power also promises and guarantees to us that we will one day be with him physically. One day we'll be with him in resurrected, restored bodies when he comes again to reign in glory. Now, I don't know how to cultivate sanctification on my own. But I want to tell you this, if you set your mind on this, Jesus is with you now and he has promised and guaranteed through his resurrection that he's going to raise you up bodily to be with him for eternity, to see his glory. That goes a long ways in my heart to help me to walk in purity, to pursue good works, to honor my Savior who lives and is present with me. The promise that he would be with us and that one day we'd be raised up to be with him is found in 1 Corinthians 15, again, in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. The powerful evidence, church, that we have to look forward to. The powerful evidence of Christ's resurrection is the promise of the bodily resurrection of all the saints who are in him. He says here that Jesus was the first fruits of those who would never see corruption nor eternal death. He's telling us here that we will be raised bodily to powerfully evidence Jesus' glorious resurrection power. That's what he went on to say at the very end of this chapter that I read to you at the beginning. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over what? Over death, over sin. Listen to this. I want you to think about this. Jesus' victory, understand this, the fact that we get new bodies isn't just for our own benefit. It is a benefit. It's a grace. But we're given new bodies for a specific purpose. Isaiah, in chapter 6, comes into the presence of God and he says, I am undone, falls upon his face on the threshold as it trembles. He says, I am coming unwoven. In God's presence, we in our flesh, apart from the resurrected power of Christ, regenerating and restoring this body, we could not be in his presence without coming undone. The victory is that we now can have the promise of entering in one day to the physical presence of God and not being consumed, but rather 
reflecting the glory of our Savior. The glorious power of his resurrection is testified through our bodily resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus, according to Scripture, is physically revealed, not only in Jesus, but it's promised in all those who believe upon Jesus. Now, again, I think if we set our minds on that, that blessed hope of the resurrection, I think it will actually change us practically. I think it will change how we live presently. If we really think about our future grace that God has promised us in Christ Jesus, in his resurrected power. That leads me to my fourth and last point this morning. God's word clearly teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus is powerfully evidenced by all who are truly saved by Jesus' life. All those who believe in Christ are powerfully transformed by Christ's resurrection power. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's why. Here's why he did this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, the Bible teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus is to be powerfully evidenced. And I want you to know something. Your spiritual life is supposed to be the evidence that Christ is alive. The evidence of his life, his resurrected life, his reigning life as our sovereign savior and king is the reality of what we see in this passage. We have spiritual life. It comes from outside of us and it produces something in us. Verse 10. The life of Christ is evidenced through our good works. It is he who's working in us to accomplish his will. Spiritual life and good works are revealed in those who truly believe. That's something to be thankful for when you see any good coming out of your life that honors God. You rejoice. Oh, he gets all the glory. But I have to say something at this point in this message. That may not be the case with everyone in this room. Understand this. The promise of the resurrected power of Christ being evidenced in you only applies that if you belong to him. Only if he took your place upon that cross, died for your sins and rose for your justification. But let me say this. If you're living in your sins actively and in your rebellion against God's word practically, 
and you are not repenting, you are without repentance, have no desire for repentance, you have absolutely no reason to believe that you are living in the power of Christ's resurrection. You're still dead in your sins and your trespasses. And you must look to him who gives life to the dead. The reason I say that as I read these passages and I see the life that is to be exhibited in the Christian according to Scripture, I know that that life comes from Christ, not from ourselves. I realize that when sinners are saved by the life-giving power of Christ, we are transformed by that same power that raised Jesus from the grave. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you if you believe. Therefore, there will be good works in spiritual life. The same power is the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.11 says, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Christ up from the dead. And it says that we are raised with him in this passage in Ephesians. We are raised from spiritual death to live in the power of Christ's life if we are born again. And it's so that we can give him praise. You're praising him. He is the one who has given you the salvation. You want to do that. You want to give him all the glory for what he has done and what he has promised to do for eternity in keeping you through his great power and love. There's a great testimony of uh, the reality here of how the resurrection transforms a man or a woman and progressively makes them more sanctified. As you go with me to Acts 26, this will be my last passage to look at. I want to show you clearly how the resurrection power of Christ transformed a man's life in radical ways. And I think that if you understand the power of Christ's resurrection, you can say amen here and pray that this, this kind of power would reign in your hearts because he's not the exception. He is simply giving us testimony to that in Scripture here. We'll see how the resurrection power of Christ and his life transformed Paul's life here. And beginning in verse 6, he's before... King Agrippa here, okay? He's before this king and he's testifying to his hope in the resurrection of Christ here. He says, Now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often. In all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. 
When we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's the last verse. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. Set apart in me. This whole testimony has to do with Paul's affirmation of the resurrection. And then he gives a testimony of his commission to go and preach that message of the resurrection, expecting that the people will be sanctified by having faith in Christ, the risen one. The one who appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Listen, Paul was transformed by that encounter. He met the living Savior on that road. And it changed his life from that point on. And that should be the testimony of every Christian in this room. When you met Christ, the living one, your life should have been changed radically and progressively. As you grow in that faith, that understanding that you have of him and the power of his resurrection that is at work in you. He proclaimed that message. Paul proclaimed that message all his life until he was taken home. He had the promise that he would be raised up again in the flesh to worship his Savior. Because he knew that the message of the resurrection of Jesus was the, the message of the power of God unto salvation. It is in the message of resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of God the Father's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice in our place. That is the gospel. Jesus' resurrection declares his innocence and our eternal acceptance in God's presence. It's through his resurrection that we are fully forgiven, fully forgiven of all of our sins, past, present and future. And we are fully accepted through his resurrection. We're fully accepted by God, the father, because now now, saints, listen, we who believe are covered in the blood soaked, righteous robes of the living savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are accepted by God the Father as if we are God the Son. In that sense, his righteousness is imputed to us. It covers us for all eternity, and we are fully embraced and accepted by God because of Christ. Setting your minds on that should cultivate sanctification. And if you're not a believer this morning, this Setting your minds on this should cultivate a desire to come to Christ for redemption. Just think about this. Jesus' resurrection testifies, testifies to that, the fact that for those who believe, there is no need to fear a holy and righteous God and his wrath to come. 
His resurrection testifies to not just that, though. His resurrection and his resurrected power that works in us testifies that there's no need to fear spiritual failure if you're a Christian. He will work through you. He will sanctify you. He prayed in John 17, my word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. There's no need to fear God's wrath or spiritual failure because Jesus lived, died, and rose again for us. And his resurrected power will sanctify us. That is a promise from the living Savior. But again, if you're here this morning and you're fearing these things, you're fearing failure and you're fearing facing God's wrath. I want to do this. I want to beg you today, this day to turn from your sins and your self-righteousness and turn to the living savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus. Look to the cross where God's love is made manifest, where love and justice met perfectly to free us from the fear of failure and wrath to come. But don't keep your eyes fixed on the cross. Look quickly to the empty tomb. It's in the empty tomb that we find the testimony that the lamb that was slain in our place has conquered sin's power for us, and he is able to save to the uttermost because he is a risen and reigning and living Savior. He lives and he intercedes for all those who draw near to God through him. This is the hope of the resurrection. And I pray that you will grasp that today. I pray that that will transform us all today as we consider this on this special day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace. Lord Jesus, your sacrifice, your willing offering of your life on our behalf are worthy of all of our praises for all eternity. But Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to express our thanks to you today the way we will in eternity. I pray that it will sanctify our lives. Set us apart, God, as we fix our minds upon the glorious truth revealed in your word about our resurrected and living Savior, the Lord Jesus. I pray that, Jesus, in your glorious name. Amen.